You are listening to an interview episode of the Road to Open Science podcast. This episode features the full interview with Sasha Frieseke, whom we talked to in our first episode, which was titled A Social Dilemma and published on May 29, 2018. Uh, so my name is Sascha Frieseke. I am an assistant professor here at the VU. Um, my title, I think, officially is called Digital Innovation, but we are a big team here that looks at what digitization means for any type of organization. And so I basically, in my research, always look at uh, what digitization means for the emergence of new knowledge, in a way. And that's also why I look at scientists as an organization form. And I'm also an associated researcher at the Alexander von Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society in Berlin, which is also my former employer. And you wrote a couple of articles on open science. Um, But maybe from your perspective, you can give your definition of open science. I don't think there is really a definition of open science, and I think that's one of its biggest problems, because basically it's an umbrella term that everybody uses who thinks that or argues that science should be a bit more inclusive, open in whatever sort of way that means. And so some people say that science needs to open to the general public or the rest of society because they fund most of science so they should have more say in it should be more participatory and they call it open science and then other people say well scientific results should be clearly replicable it should be that the entire process should be more open and also call it open science but these two people talk about very different things but it's both labeled open science and so i think when we start with having a definition it would be so wide that basically people would say well that isn't that a definition of like best practice in science in general so i wouldn't start with a definition i would rather look at what do people argue should be opened and why okay maybe maybe i can add something to that mm-hmm. um a couple of years ago we wrote an um, a book called opening science and in that book we wrote a chapter called open science one term five schools of thought and in that we basically explained that we met different people or read lots of articles where people have a very different point of view and basically we found five different ones from which they argue what open science is and if you think about it that way and understand that there's actually five different kind of points of view on talking about open science then this mismatch that you see where people talk about different things starts to make sense and how does it start to make sense by, by seeing that, for instance, people that come from an infrastructure point of view talk about something very differently where they want to have infrastructure that helps academics work together um, in comparison to people that say, well, the general public should be included in scientific prog- processes. So they talk, uh, they both talk about opening the process of science, but they talk about very different angles on what to open. They have various understandings about openness in general. Exactly. And it's also um, a bit of a question of prioritization so some people argue that like data should be openly available and that's the first thing that should be done others say well actually the first thing we should do is think about how we do scientific communication because currently academics write an article 
might be very academic. Nobody except for their peers really understands what they're doing, and then they aren't going to explain it to anyone else. They just leave and write the next article. So these you have different views. Yeah. Claiming of or people within the open science community take different perspectives, but you see the general term of open science. You you give it a term called the social dilemma. Yeah. How can you define that? So a social dilemma basically is a situation like a clean park, where the individual's interest is not necessarily in line with the interest of the general public. So if we talk about the park example, it's very easy for you to litter in a park because you have very little to lose if you, I don't know, put your garbage not in the bin but next to the bank where you're sitting. But if everybody do does that, the park is not usable anymore for the general public. Yet the incentive for the individual to clean up after themselves is kind of limited. And it's called a social dilemma because the the goal you have for the general public is not in line with the goal of the individual. And we see the very same thing in in many of the discussions in open science, where oftentimes it is argued from a system perspective. The academic system would be better off if we would be more open, yet the individual scientists is not necessarily seeing the same incentives as the system as a whole. So, for instance, what would be a very simple example to explain that? The um, academic system would be better off if every single article would be freely available under open access. Yet, for an individual scientist, his or her incentives inside of university are often tied to specific outlets. And oftentimes, these specific outlets don't allow or only allow to a limited degree that articles are made openly available. So the scientist has to make a decision if she wants to publish openly in the way that benefits the entire academic apparatus, or if she wants to publish in the way that her incentives are structured inside of a university, which, for instance, she might need for promotion, tenure, here at the VU, your um, research articles are also tied to the teaching load. So if you publish in certain outlets, your teaching load goes down. So that is, in a way, an incentive that the individual researcher has, but the overarching interest of the science as a whole is not tied to these incentives. So, for instance, my teaching load does not go down if I publish open access. And would you call this this discrepancy between the individual incentives and the, the structure of the system, is it a mismatch or is it, how would you describe it? I think it is a mismatch in a way, but it also is a question of time. I think over time, institutions research organizations, research funders understand about the importance and the systematic um, advantages of opening more of the scientific process and will then in turn also change incentives. But to change incentives takes an enormous amount of time because every individual researcher kind of grew up with his or her incentives, and if you can't, if you change them from one day to the next, they're all say, "Well, this is not what I signed up for. This is not exactly how I'm doing things." So it's a very slow process, and there is, of course, many people that advocate for more openness in the system, but there is also many people who are kind of happy the way that things were before, and they don't necessarily want changing incentives. So, do you see any urgency in opening up more? 
that makes this discussion of open science being more bold in recent years than was previously? I actually think that over the the last couple of years, we had way more discussions also with research organizations and science funders. And oftentimes they take it, I think by now, way more seriously than individual researchers that aren't engaged in open science or don't really understand what it is. So I think kind of like what you do here, one of the most important things currently is to get a general understanding of what this is and why this is a good thing. And once we have this general understanding, it will be easier to also translate that into incentives. Currently, you have, for instance, certain journals that want people to publish the primary data that's underlying for an article. And if the individual researcher doesn't understand that this is actually a good thing, then they will only they will do that because they want to have the article and the article counts for their incentive structure. But they will only publish the data in a very quick and dirty way, not document it thoroughly. And if it's not documented thoroughly, then there is hardly any reuse value of it because if anyone actually wants to look at it, they're kind of like dumbfolded, don't understand what it means, where the data is coming from. And so if the individual scientist doesn't really have the feeling that it's a good thing to publish and document the data and also have the resources in time, which then again comes from incentives, then the entire thing collapses in itself in a way. So you say that there are, we need incentives yeah. and there are three levels. We have the institutional, which for example, a university can uh, apply cr- across communities mm-hmm. because university employs researchers from many communities. Then we have the uh, disciplinary uh, incentives, for example, a community can mm-hmm. uh, uh, enforce that, like genetics or clinical trials. Yeah. This is a community that can enforce. So this will talk to a specific group of researchers. And there is also systemic, which corresponds to, for example, funders and policymakers mm-hmm. that say, you know, if you want to have this grant, you have to have a data plan. This is an example mm-hmm. of systemic uh, incentives. So you, you explain these things. Mm-hmm. And maybe the first question can be, uh, are these the only classes of incentives you see or are they the institutional organized ones and as opposed to personal incentives so so one thing i often see is that the behavior of academics is so academics are social animals in a way they do what other academics do so i think one of the biggest incentives for behavior is that people see a certain behavior around them and it makes sense So the moment that more people actually engage in a discussion about open science and the values of it, more people will understand that it kind of makes sense and also change their own behavior. This is, if we go back to the example of the clean park, the same thing that happens there. If if everybody says, well, you should take care and not leave garbage in the park, and then you don't even have like some controlling board or someone policing the park, you just see a certain behavior out of the social context of behaviors. And I think this in science is also uh, very important. You see that sometimes on a disciplinary level that certain behaviors are wanted on a discipline, but oftentimes even just on the level of an institute, for instance, that people in an institute educate other people in the institute about open science, and then that institute publishes in a certain way or has more outreach activities than is typical for their discipline or is typical for their research organization. I think that's also a very important point about incentives. I want to get back to the point which you made about how people also 
grew grow up in the system. Yeah. So that's where the personal incentives contrast with the systemic incentives. Yeah. Um, do you feel also that there's a form because then the systemic uh, the way the system works create a kind of habit yeah. that needs to be changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we see an enormous amount of, of past dependence in the academic system. Just the fact alone that we call the output format the one output format that everybody is interested in a paper in a time where everything is digital anyways, and we still call it like the physical artifact that would used to be printed on, I think is one tell. Um, a colleague of mine always called it Stockholm Syndrome, academic Stockholm Syndrome, but basically people made a career because they had to suffer through a system, and once they are at a point that they can dictate what future generations have to do, they basically say, and they also have to go through the same thing I went through. And I think the biggest issue I currently see is that we have a very monolithic culture in regards to research outputs. That basically the only research output that is really evaluated is a paper. And because of that, every single thing that anyone does needs to turn into a paper. Well, currently we could also do very different things. Someone could do a podcast. Someone could do a platform. Someone does just data. Someone provides people with research software but all of these are typically not tied to individual incentives and with that they are like kind of second second grade citizens in the academic system and i think that is the the major obstacle we're currently facing we write too many papers too many of them are irrelevant and instead we could use that time more productively by doing something that actually has an impact to whatever community we would like to have an impact on so you do also meta research. Do you have hard data for one of these examples of institutional or uh, disciplinary incentives that has worked? So, for example, a group which before the discipline was imposed, uh, before the policy was imposed, was not engaging in open science practices, mm -hmm. but once the policy was imposed, then you suddenly saw yeah, and a shift. on institutional level, any level that you have hard data. Level. Let's begin with that. Right. Well, I think it's, it's very easy to see, for instance, on a funding level. So we had in the, the last EU funding scheme, they had a percentage of how many publications need to be open access. And with that, they have a big lever. And now in Horizon 2020, they did the same with data. So I think that is probably the biggest where you can just see what's coming out of these projects. In individual institutions, it's actually kind of complicated to collect that data of all the incentives that are in place within an organization. There is, there are some people, I think, in Canada that try to collect them. For instance, all tenure um, agreements, what you have to reach for tenure in North American universities to understand if if and how they are tied to open science practices, but they haven't published anything yet on it as far as I know, but I know that the project's going on for a year. I wanted to do something like that in the Netherlands, but I couldn't find master's students who were interested in it. So I'm still looking for the data set. But actually, you could do that very well where you would look at the... And in the Netherlands is... Um, there is lots of very like kind of hard-coded incentive schemes, while in other countries, oftentimes, once you are a professor, you can more or less do what you want to do. But here it's often tied to teaching load. It's often you have many promotional levels that you can go through, and typically they are tied to some kind of a research output. 
here at Defu, for instance, it's most it's basically all academic articles. So if you produce lots of articles, you're good in that regard. But if you produce, for instance, a software package, if you produce a platform that's very important and reaches a lot of people, that wouldn't count in a way. So I can say that like qualitatively for what we do here and quantitatively, I think the, the most interesting is probably on the EU level and what they changed. That seems like a systemic change from the institutions. Like if you change, if the, the EU funds and yeah. the, the way that the output is counted uh, is more of a, a played on an institutional level and it eventually that would end up being a systemic change? Yeah, I think many people that go into looking at open science think it's kind of obvious what needs to be done. And then after a couple of years, leave frustrated or write a long blog post that we have the same discussion again after five years that we had five years ago. But underestimate how complicated it is to change culture, and especially in academia where we have a very decentralized culture. If you have a large organization and you have a new CEO and the new CEO says, we have new values, these are the new values, then that kind of trickles down through the organization. But in academia, we are purposefully decentralized. So we have an, a lot of academic freedom in what exactly we do. But with that, we are also very strongly past dependent on prior action because that's basically where culture comes from. Culture comes from in academia, from what academia did before you. So you are pointing a, a very important uh, decision-making process in terms of how to prioritize open science policies. Yeah. So do you think there would be a research done? You know, academics are very good at doing research. Can you suggest the research that we can do in order to find out which policies we have to enforce first and have the highest chance of acceptance, for example, or have the highest impact in moving toward open science? based on uh, either, I don't know, soft research or even hard data uh, collecting meta research? I think one thing that would be very interesting to look at this on a disciplinary level and basically find disciplines or sub-disciplines that have a very high degree of sharing might be data, might be that they have a practice of preprint publications, which are very common in some fields, many fields, might be that they have um, a different sharing of, for instance, software and code uh, analysis would also be interesting. And then basically contrast them in a qualitative manner and see best practices. And I think many of these practices that emerged in um, disciplines came because key decision makers in that discipline are kind of close and saw the need for a specific change and had enough power to put that change through the few, basically the few gatekeepers that actually matter in a discipline, which are typically the most important outlets they have in the discipline, the most important conferences in the discipline. And if you have the, the key researchers behind it, then it's very hard for a young researcher not to also 
adopt that behavior. I think that would be very interesting to do that qualitatively and contrast how different disciplines dealt with that differently. And if we can distill out of that basically policy guidelines in general, I don't think that it's a good idea to say there is one policy or there is a one way to do open science and we should simply copy that to every single discipline because I think that the fact that disciplines are diverse in how they deal with certain aspects of the academic publishing or knowledge creation in general I think is what makes much of the value of the academic system that we basically have different points of view and I think so in a first step I would rather be interested in understanding how did they do that differently to get to certain results and what can we in general learn from that without saying we need to put stick that on every single discipline so they're all the same so you advocate a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down yeah, so I don't think that a purely bottom-up or a purely top-down approach to get to open science will work. I think it is such a multifaceted and complex problem that the only way to solve that is if people from all levels kind of work together and say, this has a value for us, we would like to move a little bit more into that direction. And if everybody involved kind of does his or her part to move into that direction, then we have a chance. But I, if we say, well, those up there have to make a decision and before that I don't move. And if they up there say, well, the individual scientists should do whatever they want to do, if they think it's a good thing, they should do. I think both of these aspects alone will not work. So you have also done uh, research on uh, practices in a certain community on data sharing. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Uh, so can you briefly explain which community that was and what was the main results which surprised you or you expected or how far are we at least in that community from, let's say, open science practices being implemented? So what we did, we did a large survey with, I think, 1,500 German academic researchers on their data sharing behavior from different disciplines. And the most surprising thing I think we found is when we started this research, we thought that one of the main barriers to data sharing is probably that researchers don't want others to see that they made a mistake. So they basically want to hide the data. It's kind of like an hypothesis we had. And what we found is that that actually isn't the case, that researchers kind of believe in the academic system and that there should be some form of quality control and that all the actual barriers we found are very closely tied to the publishing system. So they would say what stops them from publishing their data are mainly two things. One is the time it costs to make that data available for others and that that time is an opportunity cost in which they cannot publish an additional article while others would use that time and in a competitive system would publish an additional article. And the other thing they were afraid of was that if someone sees my data and my data is interesting, that someone else will publish an article with my data that I might also be able to publish. So they basically sit on the data because of the publishing system. Which, is, which also shows that the incentives clearly favor article outlets or papers 
but not data, and if data would have some form of adequate recognition, then they wouldn't have this feeling of opportunity cost, but would rather say, first I do the paper afterwards, I publish the data, or I publish the data first, and then I collaborate with whoever's interested in it. But this, this collaboration aspect is apparently not that strong for them, and this was across disciplines. We found that always the two main drivers were I would like to publish with it later on, or if I invest the time to document this, then I don't have the time to publish. And then we get back to the social dilemma, or this is a very clear example of that. In a social dilemma, individual rationality leads to collective irrationality. And individually, it is the best strategy to basically produce a lot of individual research articles. Collectively, we suffer from an avalanche of articles where many people ask why there are so many articles and many of them are irrelevant and would be better if we would have more collaboration, more thorough research, more research that is done by larger teams that have larger data sets and actually can say more, can find more rigorous and relevant findings. Well, individually, we actually have an interest to they call it uh, salami tactics to churn out as many articles as possible because individually that's what brings us further. And I would like to go even go further and say that this social dilemma could be used as a prism to see all the the aspects of open science through. Would you agree, or do you understand what I mean? I think, in a way, um, to look at to look at science through the lens of a social dilemma helps in the development of policies. So, oftentimes, you have individuals that do something that might not be in line with the actual incentives that they have, simply because they believe in it. And oftentimes, these cases are taken, and then it's presented as, here, look, it works, what are you worrying about? But to look at what are the actual incentive structure, then helps to understand why most people behave in a certain way. And only when we understand why most people behave in a certain way, we can define and develop policies that help shift these activities a little bit towards a more open science. So do you agree that the role of big institutions as uh, players which are not producing science but producing policy more is to break the social dilemma? In a way, I think everybody has to be a part of this discussion. Institutions alone cannot change it because they depend on the scientists actually wanting to do that. If you roll out a policy and the individual scientist isn't convinced about the policy, they will only do it to a degree that they have to, but they will not really put the effort in to excel in it. If only the scientists think that something is a good idea, but the institutions don't back it, and don't promote it in a way, then over time scientists feel frustrated, might leave, might go somewhere else, but don't have a great relationship with the institution. It's something you, for instance, oftentimes see in um, teaching, where teaching is oftentimes a sufficing problem, where institutions want you not to be horrible at teaching, but many research institutions don't give you anything if you really excel in teaching. You don't 
get anything in return. And so people only do that because they are intrinsically motivated, basically. And after a while, they get frustrated because no one really like pats them on the back and says, that's a great thing you do, or there is something in, in return for um, a certain behavior. We talked about the, the urgency. Is there something that's really actual for you now? I think one thing that's urgent and that um always try to talk to people about is that a lot of the discussion about the importance of open science happens between the same people. And these people are already convinced that it's important and they discuss about minor details of basically the rollout. But the more important thing is to get the general research on board, so have more people's attentions on why this is important, and also explain to them what that means for them individually. So we know, for instance, that um, articles that are published under an open access, that are published open access, that are freely available, have far more readers and are more often cited than articles that are behind a paywall. And it would be in the individual researcher's interest to be read, I hope, that most people actually write to be read and not write to be published. And so these minor things to explain that to a wider audience and help them understand why this could have potential individual benefit will help to get people on board. And once they are on board, we can talk about more details of open science. This interview was recorded by Sandy Faez and me, Lieven Heremans, and this episode was produced with help from Andy Clark.